calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Outliers, a Realm original. Episode 5. Da had lied to me. By omission, anyway. It was true that he'd been a faculty member of an Ivy League college, but only for a few years. He'd been on a forced sabbatical when he was recruited by the government for a top-secret project. For the military. For research that would no less preserve and perpetuate human life on the planet. What do you mean by forced sabbatical? I asked. He'd been going on and on about his importance to the project, and my interruption irritated him. That was obvious. He glared at me, imperious, arrogant, words from the dictionary that I now understand beyond definitions on a page. Like the moon, I'd only seen the side of Da irradiated by the sun. Now I was getting a glimpse of the dark side. For my so-called extremist views. Like what? What does that matter now, boy? I waited him out. He tugged the Navajo blanket up around his shoulders, a slight palsy in his hands. I hadn't really noticed the age spots peppering his knuckles before, or else they seemed darker against the pastiness of his skin. Eugenics. Now shall I continue? A chill tickled the back of my neck. I'd seen the word before in a dictionary, but I didn't remember the definition. Not exactly. It hadn't been good, though. Rather than interrupt the flow by asking more questions, I gestured for him to continue. He harumphed and then adopted what I figured must be a professional tone. Before the change, overpopulation was a threat to the survival of the human species. In a single generation, the global population had mushroomed to untenable proportions, and such continued growth was not sustainable. In a decade, there wouldn't be enough food or fresh water for all inhabitants. Throughout history, nature had always managed to make readjustments to offset a threat to the planet's harmonious balance. In modern times, this was no longer the case. Readjustments? Such as with earthquakes and tsunamis, nature's lethal multi-continent double-edged sword. 
Rain perpetuated floods. Lightning ignited forest fires that turned millions of forest acres to ashes. All natural but ultimately futile attempts by the planet to shake off the burgeoning parasites of the 21st century. By parasites, I think he meant human beings. Do-gooders had come up with solutions to reduce human fatalities. Earthquake-proof structures, dikes and dams and reefs, forest management, fire-retardant building materials, a myriad of ways to circumvent the destructive force of nature, fewer casualties. I found myself confused. That's a good thing, though, right? If you believe the innovations of the few should benefit the masses, that slaves should sup at the table of their masters... His face twisted into a sneer. I had to force myself not to reel back in repugnance. War was not a viable solution, he continued. The casualty count is too low. I felt my cheeks burn with stunned indignation. I had read dozens of books on the battles of the First World War, of the muddy trenches and the horrors. Da, 16 million people died in World War I alone. 16 million. A shrug at that drop in the bucket to what nature can accomplish when riled. The influenza epidemic of 1918 killed nearly four times the number of soldiers who died on the battlefield in the four previous years. The flu wiped out 50 million souls like that. He snapped his fingers. I found the gesture obscene. Nature didn't kill them. Semantics, boy. A virus did. There was a time when the leading cause of death in humans was sepsis. Men succumbed to the wounds they'd received in warfare. Women perished in the aftermath of childbirth. Nature kept the population in balance. But then humanitarian obsessions collided with modern medicine. Deformed or sickly babies that should have died at birth grew to adulthood. In the modern age, because of medical intervention, the weak kept on living and breeding. The sneer was back. But then his bony face erupted in a sly smile as he continued, not from amusement from dredging up a favored historical reference among his recollections. Nature had never given up, of course. Natural solutions to overpopulation and environmental overload began to spike in the Middle Ages. Plagues, pandemics. When the Black Death swept across Europe in the late 14th century, fully one-third of the population perished, extinguished in a matter of months. In London in the 1600s, one in five inhabitants died of plague, the rampant rise of viral hemorrhagic fevers and autoimmune deficiency diseases in the late 20th and early 21st centuries was another attempt by Mother Nature to course correct. His Navajo blanket slipped off his shoulders. I could smell a sourness wafting from him. But nothing natural could succeed on the scale required. Not if the planet was to survive. I couldn't suppress a sarcastic retort. You're trying to claim that you were some sort of nihilist environmentalist? No. I was a member of the Godhead. I felt a cold finger of fear press on the base of my spinal column. The Godhead? What the hell? I sputtered. What did you do, Da? What did you do? He didn't answer me. It was then I realized this wasn't a conversation. Not at all. He didn't want to hear my opinion. Nor did he want to answer my questions. This wasn't a confession either, since I never detected the faintest hint of remorse. A speech, maybe. No. A boastful self-eulogy dense with prideful self-justification. I was his witness. As he spoke, his seldom-used voice grew hoarse, the hot light of a fanatic burning in his eyes. I'd never seen this version of the man emerge before. Not once in all the previous years I'd lived by his side. 
It was as if the evil within him, like a pathogenic virus long dormant, was finally coming into view beneath the dark surface of a now-melting permafrost. I sat stiffly, choking on my dismay as he waxed on with undisguised admiration of the theory behind such things as enhanced radiation weapons, like the neutron bomb, a low-yield thermonuclear weapon created to maximize lethal neutron radiation in the immediate vicinity of a blast while minimizing the physical power of the blast itself. You see, those nuclear scientists were onto something, boy. It's one thing to exterminate the occupying population, but quite another to demolish the existing infrastructure. Buildings are better repurposed than destroyed. I had to bite down hard on the side of my tongue to keep from interjecting. The real problem is the long-term after-effects of radiation. For example, because of a nuclear accident at a power plant in Chernobyl, the area won't be safe for human habitation for 20,000 years. On a planet which is 71% water, buildable and arable land is finite. Creating radiation-saturated zones of alienation is not feasible in the short term. He went on and on like that for a long time. Bottom line? What the military-slash-government wanted was a way to target specific populations without damaging infrastructure, rendering buildings unusable or contaminating approved populations. A solution with a half-life that didn't spread beyond a single generation so that the architects of the plan could themselves observe the result and reap the benefits. A focused, strategic attack. Like using a scalpel to remove a tumor while leaving the healthy tissue intact. A bioweapon. Da had been a scientist. A molecular geneticist. He specialized in accelerated cellular mutation. Within five years, he discovered a way to prompt cellular mutation in living tissue to achieve a fundamental manipulation of human genes, which resulted in the permanent alteration in the DNA sequence. A mutation that didn't kill the host, but altered it significantly. Blindingly rapid mutation. Not physiological or physical changes that occurred over epochs or generations or years, but within hours. He'd been a scientific mixologist of sorts. A genetic bartender. Mixing, refining, taste testing. He was unapologetic. Yes, the advancement of his research had required extended experimentation on living subjects. After all, his research was government-sanctioned. Research subjects had been duly provided. Death row inmates had been given the choice of waiting in a sterile cell for their state-sanctioned deaths, or of redeeming themselves as patriots. Many had chosen the latter. So had lifers, and the terminally ill, and the chronically depressed, the homeless, runaways, addicts, the unemployed. I wondered if these volunteers had understood the fine print on the release they'd all signed before they'd been whisked away in a black van never to be seen or heard from again. Da had created a virulent concoction of some of his favorite viruses, toxins, and bacteria, along with rapid-growth hybrid cancer cells. A dash of Lisa, or rabies, the virus that forces itself into the brain and turns the central nervous system against itself, for the foaming-at-the-mouth specter of madness. A drop of Mycobacterium leprae, the bacteria that causes leprosy, to target the skin and the spinal cord, effectively causing the host to shed its external cartilage, like noses and ears, and develop a plaque-like epidermal layer that could easily be mistaken for an exoskeleton. He also handpicked symptoms from a myriad of rare and virulent diseases that affected species other than man, and adapted them to bond with human DNA. Not lethal, but catastrophically altering at the cellular level affecting only grade ape-level primates, from chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, orangutans to mankind, and no other species. 
he managed to disrupt these organisms at a metabolic level too, corrupting their mammalian metabolisms so that an endotherm resembled an ectotherm, and that it relied on the heat from the sun or some other artificial light source to survive. Bottom line, he'd succeeded in prompting rapid cellular mutation that didn't kill outright, but metamorphosed a human being into a hairless, sexless, rabid, and slavering mad alien-looking creature with 48 hours of exposure to his superbio cocktail. Daw was Dr. Frankenstein, funded by the U.S. military and the Department of Homeland Security. Daw had been the architect of the change. Daw had created the outliers. Daw believed he'd been working to save the planet. He still did. But it didn't end there. The master plan was deceptively simple, he bragged. Devise a first contact delivery system in a simple aerosol spray. Once released in a relatively small public area, nature would take over. The initial exposed population would infect the larger population through close contact. Nasal secretions, sweat, saliva, blood. The number of infected would rise astronomically in a period of hours. As the epidemic blossomed, the military would be mustered. Martial law would be declared. Shoot to kill would be the order. No, Dodd did not create a bioweapon that would deplete a population. He'd created an excuse for territorial approved genocide. No declarations of war. No retaliation. Simply sovereign countries calling their own infected herds out of necessity to reduce overpopulation. For the sake of their nations. For the sake of the planet. In Dawes' mind, this made him a savior. The target? Hot and humid regions with dense and impoverished populations. Equatorial Africa and Central and South America. Southern Asia. Those populations with darker skins. The ruling class would not be affected. Though there was no antidote to this biological Armageddon, the oligarchs, the princes, the wealthy, and the power-wielding elite had the means to avoid infection. Da was most proud of the failsafe he'd created within a bioweapon itself. An outbreak wasn't perpetual. The contagion period of an altered organism was short-lived, about 20 days, 30 at most. After that, the mutants could not pass on their affliction, though, of course, they still needed to be put down by either the military or security forces. No soldier would have a problem gunning down virulent creatures that barely resembled humans. Da's pride bordered on gleeful. A biological solution on par with the neutron bomb. You see, boy? I found a way to keep the infrastructure from becoming uninhabitable. The meek wouldn't inherit the earth. The wealthy and politically powerful would. Not only that, he'd given the mutation metamorphosis a finite afterlife. Not 20,000 years like the toxic environs of Chernobyl. The mutations only lasted about 15 or 20 years, give or take. Then those mutants who managed to survive would slowly revert to what they had been before the change. Their mutation would wear off like dye after repeated washings. If there were any left alive, that is. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Dodd traced three letters in his calloused palm. V-T-B. That was the name of the government-sanctioned research lab he'd headed, he told me. 
VTB Laboratories. Da had chosen the name himself. Random letters he'd told the higher-ups. But they weren't. VTB stood for virus, toxin, bacteria. Da's little inside joke. The plan, as Da and his colleagues had envisioned, was never instigated. Their bioweapon, what Da affectionately called the solution, had never been selectively deployed in the target areas. Instead, a group of radical environmental activists had launched a coordinated attack on Da's research facility and had caused the equivalent of a nuclear meltdown. Explosions, fires. The labs had been destroyed, during which time a significant dose of the bioweapon was released into the surrounding environment. The activists had been exposed. So had the scientists, the facilities management, the support staff, the groundskeepers, the military personnel, and the private security force and the local inhabitants. Rapid disbursement ensued. As intended, the infected mutated and infected others. The biocataclysm occurred not at the equator, but in a remote black site research facility near the Canadian border, which quickly spread through the surrounding countryside. Da had somehow survived the explosion. He'd been injured, but not seriously. He'd picked himself up from the rubble and stumbled into the woods. He remembers looking back to see surviving co-workers inadvertently breathing in the released aerosol fumes, then bending over in agony as the cells in their bodies rapidly mutated. He had staggered through the snow, a handkerchief wrapped around his mouth and nose as a crude prophylactic. The newly mutated creatures were lethargic in the cold, as he'd intended. They were purposely created to be robust in the hot zones, where overpopulation was at its zenith. He prayed he had the strength to outrun them. By sheer willpower, he somehow made it the eight miles cross-country to his home, but he was too late. The initial infection had spread with the lightning speed he'd intended. When he reached his house, his entire family had already mutated. Not even the creator of the plague could save them. He shot them all with his shotgun. His wife, his three daughters, his sons-in-law, the housekeeper and nanny, and lastly, his grandchildren. One by one. Mercy killing. He knew the military would shoot them anyway. He burned his own house to the ground, a funeral pyre for those he'd loved. After that, he didn't care if he lived or died. He wandered in a daze through the snow, vaguely heading north. Behind him, sirens blaring. Sporadic gunfire in the woods. The viral outbreak spread rapidly, as he'd intended. There was no stopping it. He came upon abandoned vehicles on the feeder roads and along the highway. Doors flung open when the passengers fled on foot. A car radio had been left blaring. You'd hear the voice of the governor ordering an evacuation of all counties adjacent to the outbreak. Buses filled up with fleeing locals, but it only took one infected passenger to turn a busload of people into mutants. He should know. It had been his brainchild. Da owed his survival to the fact that he didn't seek help or shelter. He had expected to stumble through the snow until he froze to death. But then he came upon a car wreck in a remote highway untouched by a snowplow. The young man behind the wheel was dead, his chest crushed by the steering column. So was the young woman lying in the snow a dozen feet away. She'd been ejected through the windshield, nearly decapitated by broken glass. Neither had been wearing seatbelts. In the back seat secured in a car seat was a child, halfway between an infant and a toddler, mewling in fear or from the cold. A boy. Me. Da took pity on the orphan child. He plucked me from the car seat and headed north, carrying me on his back, swaddled in a blanket and a knapsack, away from ground zero of the outbreak, to where we are now. He then told me my origin story one final time, 
of the hardship, of the formidable, bone-chilling terrain that we traversed to get to our home. I no longer found it comforting or thrilling. My origin story and the origin story of the outliers are one and the same. You're listening to Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski. <laughs>